You're listening to the podcast of Williamsburg Christian Church, a community of faith joining God's pursuit of restoring lives. We hope you enjoy this week's podcast. The Grit of Grace, well, grit, we took from Angela Duckworth's book called Grit, and the definition she gave was the combination of passion and perseverance over the long haul. Combination of passion and perseverance over the long haul, that's grit. Uh, What I'm suggesting is that the grit of grace is holding on to the belief that God's grace has no limits, His redemption no bounds, and His love no end. That the grit of grace is holding on to the belief that God's grace has no limits, His redemption no bounds, and His love no end. And so I want to get into the conversation. This is my grandma. Growing up, I spent a lot of time with Grandma Ligon. And many of you who know me know this. There was a season when my family lived with her because we didn't have a home of our own to live in. But even before that and for years after, I spent several weeks with her during the summer. And it was was a way of life for me. Her house was great. I'll never forget the smell of her house, the look of her house. It had a big backyard filled with pecan trees. We call them pecans when you're from Georgia. Um, I think some of you from the more refined areas of our country call them pecans. Um, They're just pecans. Uh, At the end of the yard, uh, she had this large vegetable garden. And at the end of the vegetable garden, she had the best thing of all, a large chicken coop. Now, I was fascinated with the chicken coop. Although she no longer had a lot of chickens, uh, by the time I uh, was, was, was of age, uh, I could not wait to wake up in the morning and go with her to the garden. But I wouldn't work the garden, I would play with the chickens. And it, it, was, it was a beautiful, beautiful thing, uh, just because I was fascinated and I didn't have this. Uh, and I enjoyed playing with the chickens until I was about nine. Grandma felt when I was about nine that it was time to do more than just play with chickens. One morning, she asked me to do something that I didn't even know was something people did. She asked me to scoop up the bedding and collect all the chicken manure from the pen and place it in this thing called a compost. It's just gross. So she told me that once I would do that, in a few weeks, it would be my job to work out of the compost and scoop it and then plant it in the garden. And... Up until that point, I thought my grandmother loved me. And, 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 and now, seriously, don't get me wrong. As a nine-year-old, I enjoyed a good, you know, potty humor joke, right? And I mean, admittedly, I, I, I still do. But, but I did not, I did not find this one funny at all. When, when I asked why she felt, it, uh, which, which I felt, by the way, it was a reasonable question. She, she did not. She explained that that vegetables grow best with chicken manure. She didn't know why. She just knew it was true. And I figured that my grandmother, who knew everything about the earth, as an old country girl who lived before, during, and long after the Depression, the Great Depression, uh, and was independent spirit and soul, that she just, she just knew best. She just needed to make sure that I understood um, the question that I asked her as a follow-up that if chicken manure was good for compost, what about human manure? And she reminded me that it was only chicken manure. And I didn't know that because for my nine-year-old mind, I thought that was a fair question. 
See, as I've gotten older, I've come to understand what grandma didn't know. Chicken manure fertilizes uh, well because it's high in nitrogen for those who uh, wanted to come to church and understand how chicken manure works. Here's your, this is my gift to you. And it contains a good amount of potassium and phosphorus, right? So like the high nutrient and balanced nutrients is like the reason the chicken compost is the best kind of manure to use of all the kind of manure you can offer. Composting the manure gives it time to break down some of the most powerful nutrients so that it gets uh, into the plants and is usable in the plants. And so I did it, man. It became my job for a couple of summers and there was nothing good about it. It was nasty. It was smelly. It was gross. It made me gag. It was hard. It was unpleasant. It was messy. And it strained my relationship with the chickens. And I never looked at vegetables that came out of her garden the same again. I tell you this because today's text is about manure. So for all of you folks committed to decorum who are going to get hacked off at me for the fact that I'm going to say manure 72 times today, you got to read your Bible because it's in there. And I could come up with other words if you'd like, uh, but that's the word that I'm choosing to use. All right? Today's text is going to be about manure. But, it, well, at least it involves manure as a central piece, no pun intended, of the text. Uh, there's something about this parable, though, that we need to know. All right, so before we get into the parable itself, I want to remind us a little bit of something on parables. Parables literally mean, the word parable literally means something thrown down alongside of. Parables are meant to make us ask questions, right? They're not clear. There's no clear big idea. They're not meant to be practical. You hear me? Parables aren't meant to be practical. They're meant to provoke imagination and provoke thought. They're meant to get our attention and make us ask the question, what is this doing right in front of me here? They are meant to help us see what's right in front of us, what we've always had in front of us, but never had the time or the attention to actually see it. Parables are meant to help us make connections between what's right in front of our noses and what's going on around us. Parables are meant to make us question the assumptions we have and the biased responses we have with this thing called life. And you see this in all the parables. And Jesus rarely makes references to God directly in the parables. Matter of fact, Jesus usually tells parabolic stories are parables with stories that his hearers could relate to, like farmers, judges, victims, coins, sheep, prodigal children, weddings, building barns and towers, going to war, a friend who wakes you up in the middle of the night, the courtesies of hospitality, crooks, beggars, and now manure. Now here's the thing about the parable, church. The power of the parable hinges solely on the hearer of the parable, which is why oftentimes Jesus would say, he who has ears, let him hear. So we have to listen closely. To parables. Finally, I want to say this. Parables were never meant to say something new. They just try to help us observe or notice something we've overlooked. Something we've dismissed. So, I know it's the 9 o'clock gathering. Clearly, we're a little sleepier than normal. So, if you need to stand up and stretch, feel free to do so. If you need to walk around, feel free to do so. If you need to get a cup of coffee, feel free to do so. 
If you get bored with what I have to say, open your version app and follow Smith Memorial. If you, you know, they have theirs in there too. <laughs> I feel like we do more advertising for that church than we do our own. I'm going to call the guy there and be like, hey, dude, do you tell people to follow ours if they get bored with you? So here's the parable. Luke chapter 13, verse 1 through 9. About this time, Jesus was told that Pilate had given orders for some people from Galilee to be killed while they were offering sacrifices. Jesus replies, Do you think that these people were worse sinners than everyone else in Galilee just because of what happened to them? Not at all. But you can be sure that if you don't turn back to God, every one of you will be killed, also be killed. What about those 18 people who died when the Tower of Siloam fell on them? Do you think they were worse than anyone else in Jerusalem? Not at all. But you can be sure that if you don't turn back to God, every one of you will also die. Encouraged yet? All right. And then Jesus breaks into the parable. Then Jesus told him a story. Man had a fig tree growing in his vineyard. One day he went out to pick some figs, but he didn't find any. So he said to the gardener, for three years I have come looking for figs on this tree, and I haven't found any yet. Chop it down. Why should it take up space? The gardener answered, Master, leave it for another year. I'll dig around it and put some manure on it to make it grow. Maybe it will have figs on it next year. If it doesn't, you can have it. Cut down. All right, so here's the context. There's been a very large crowd gathered around Jesus. It starts at Luke 12, 1. That becomes the immediate context. Been a very large crowd gathering around Jesus. He's been teaching a number of things concerning life lived under God's reign or God's rule. With these teachings have come warnings about not trusting what God is up to in the world, especially concerning his ministry. All right, you with me? I'm going to do some active listening this morning. Are you with me? All right, all right. So the immediate context here in Luke 12, you hear Jesus telling them to watch out for bad religious political leaders. He tells them to pay close attention to what he's doing and make sure that they look closely at their Hebrew Bibles to make the connections to what God is up to in the world, to keep their eye out for their appetite for things and for stuff and their tendency to put money and possessions above people and above compassion. He tells them that they need to trust God's rule and seek His justice in their lives. And if they do, all their basic needs will be cared for. Then if you keep reading, you'll hear where Jesus offers prophetic warnings to keep their eyes open to what God is up to and to live expectantly uh, in light of God's movement in the world. He tells them that taking His teaching seriously while doing this will get you in trouble, will cause you trouble, because in Rome you can't split, alleg split allegiances, and the teachings of Jesus cause you to allegiance. His teaching, he says in this context, may even place a wedge between you and your mother, and your father, your spouse, your children. I want to repeat that again. Jesus says that taking him seriously may even place a wedge between you and those you love. Then Jesus talks to them about the weather. Well, sort of. You look at Luke 12, 54, Jesus points out at how good they think they are about reading the weather patterns. But then he follows up with the question of if you're so good at reading the weather, why are you so terrible at reading what God is doing right now in front of you? That's a pretty, pretty compelling question. And then he 
honors them, in a sense, by talking about how great they are at thoughtfully entering into disputes and how they, are, how they believe it's best to settle your dispute, disputes with your accuser before you get to court rather than waiting to get into court. And then Jesus says, if you're good at that, why are you not settling your disputes and your affairs with God? Why are you waiting for the potentiality, for the potential of judgment? That's the text. Now, in our text that we picked up in Luke 13, Jesus' discourse, his teaching, is interrupted by the news of two disasters. One disaster is caused by human agency, by humanity, namely Governor Pilate, who massacred Galileans for sacrificing in the temple. The other disaster is an unfortunate one where the Tower of Siloam fell and many people died. It's an accidental, unfortunate accident. And so Jesus takes the news as an opportunity maybe to speak, obviously to speak into something they must be thinking, right? That this happened because the victims were being punished for their sins, which is how a lot of people roll up in Christianity thinking this is how it works. Jesus, like, says no. Just like he did in John 8, he says that's just not, not the way it works. Apparently, see, the crowd had believed that since it, didn't happen to them that their sins must not have been as bad. And we should have learned by now that to interpret such disasters in this selective way is entirely wrong. And again, Jesus tells them so. He also tells them, and take, stay with me, he also tells them that this tragedy should awaken them to take stock of their own lives. That's what he does with this tragedy. Seems like Jesus is trying to say the world is fickle and violent and makes life fragile. And right now, they're alive and well. And instead of taking the seat of judgment, they should take the seat of humility. They should examine their lives. Pay attention to what God is actually doing versus living their lives as speculation. Right now, life may be hard for some of them, but they're alive. Right now, life may be difficult for some of them, but they're alive. And I think what Jesus is saying when you look at the context is that right now is the time to consider God's grace in their lives because at any moment, at any moment, some sort of terrible disaster could happen, whether it's man-made or some sort of accident. Some sort of terrible disaster could happen. And so Jesus offers this parable that teaches them about judgment, time, grace, and of course, manure. We have this fig tree. That's the parable, right? We have this fig tree. At least it looks like a fig tree. And there's one problem. There's no figs. Remember? How can you prove that it's a fig tree if it has no figs? And if you are the owner, and if I'm the owner of the vineyard, what good is a tree to you if it produces no fruit? So in Jesus' parable, what does the owner do? The owner does what any owner would instinctively say. Cut the tree down. It makes sense. Who needs its ugly and unproductive presence? It's an unproductive eyesore. Get rid of it. Chop it down. It's a problem and it's become an inconvenience. And it's had time. It's had time. Say it's had time. It's had three years time. See, there's a violent outrage in the owner's response to the unproductive fig tree. It comes off like an impulsive response, similar to what we actually can detect in the impulsive response of the crowd to what Jesus is teaching and the events that they have heard about. It's the same kind of impulsive response that we find in an earlier story in Luke. 
and it involves two of Jesus' disciples, James and John. Now, this story happens not too long before our text. In chapter 9 of Luke, if you want to mark it out, Jesus and his disciples were on their way to the home, uh, on their way home to Jerusalem, for, or on their way from home, I'm sorry, to Jerusalem for the Passover event. They had to pass through Samaria. Samaria is hostile country to Jews. They had 700 years of hostility based upon their ethnicity and their religion. Now, if you read the story in Luke 9, you'll find that after the first day crossing, they needed a place to stay, but as they tried to find the place to stay, the Samaritans made it very clear they weren't welcome there. Well, this sends, the, <laughs> this sends James and John, who uh, are also known as the Thunder Brothers, like that's like their wrestling name. Uh, this sends them into an outrage. Man. And so you know what they want to do? They want to cut them down. They ask Jesus if, uh, if he thinks it'd be a good idea to call fire down from heaven. I mean, these are just Samaritans anyway. There's serious racial hostility here. Seriously, y'all. There's ethnic and racial hostility, hostility here. They're not welcome. Let's just cut it down. That's their response. Yeah. And so, Jesus offers a parable. Who else? Just like the crowds, they receive this parable. But let me go back. Something we got to remember about James and John and maybe about this crowd. See, James and John had a biblical precedence for their request for Jesus. See, this was the same territory that the prophet Elijah had called down fire when he was battling King Ahaziah's minions. James and John weren't unreasonable in their impulsive response. Maybe no more than the crowd was unreasonable in their impulsive assumption. But here's the thing that James and John had to figure out. Jesus isn't Elijah. And here's the thing that we have to figure out. In our parable, Jesus isn't the owner. Maybe, maybe, maybe Jesus is the gardener. And maybe, maybe in our parable, we are the owner. Now, the verdict's out in all fairness, as to who the owner represents. And that's the things about parable. thing about parables, they're tricky. Particularly this one, because this one is technically a parable that doesn't have any closure. It ends abruptly. There's an actual Hebrew name for that. But if I take into context the account of Luke 12, and particularly all the details, including the crowd's responses and assumptions at various moments in the discourse, which you'd have to read to see, I think it's possible that the owner represents us. Either way, here's what we know. That the gardener in the story, the gardener's merciful. The gardener looks on the unproductive tree and says to the owner, give it more time. Let me work with this one. Let me fertilize it. Let me cultivate it. Give me another year and let me see if I can get it to produce fruit. The gardener believes, in this story, if you look at it, the gardener believes that the tree is able to perform the task it was designed to do, to be productive and to bear fruit. It just needs more time, but not time alone. Say, not time alone. Time alone doesn't do anything. I hear people say all the time, well, you just need time. No, you don't. You don't need time. Time, time alone doesn't do anything. Three years had passed by and the fig tree had not produced anything. It doesn't need more time. Time alone doesn't produce what is good. Time alone doesn't heal wounds and make things better. Time alone doesn't necessarily build strength. 
It's what is done in the time. It's what is done in the time that determines the fruit. It's what's done. And in Jesus' parable, the fig tree needs more than time. It needs fertilizer. Now, unfortunately for the fig tree, the best fertilizer is manure. Stinky, filthy, messy manure. It's harsh, terrible, filthy. It's manure. And one of the terrible truths of the parable is that sometimes the way we grow deep lives is when the manure piles on. Now, I should get a witness on that one. I mean, without exception, the deepest people I know and I've walked with for my 19 years of pastoral work, which is scores of folks, are people whose lives have been formed by suffering and trials and challenges. And I found this to be true in my own life. I bet you have too. These trials and challenges will either break us or they'll grow us. But if we're here, they haven't broken us. So I'm speaking to us. So somehow they're growing us. See, these folks that I've walked with, their lives bear witness to the grid of grace. And the hope of this parable, the hope of this parable of judgment, because that's really what it is, is that there's always grace. The hope of this parable is that over time and God's grace, the manure that piles onto our life, He will enter in and produce something meaningful. But there's something else about manure. It doesn't produce anything good for a while. It does take time. But like the gardener in the parable, the master gardener of our lives is gracious. As the rain of sin and death that work around us piles on the manure, we know that the master gardener is at work in the soil of our lives and intends to make something meaningful with the manure. To believe this is the grit of grace. It's holding on to the belief that God's grace has no limits, His redemption no bounds, and His love no end. Now, here's the way I figure it. The grit of grace can be found in the manure and can offer us at least two areas to grow. One, it'll invite us to trust that God is tending to your life despite the circumstances and intends to make something meaningful from it. He knows how we're made. He knows what we're made to do. He knows how our bodies are supposed to work. Our hearts are supposed to work. Our minds are supposed to work as we're rebirthed in the Spirit of God. The manure that piles onto our lives and the grit of grace moving through that can produce in us a deeper love, a stronger faith, a deeper patience, or a stronger courage. Even James, not the son of thunder, James, but James, the brother of Jesus, James, he once said it this way. My brothers and sisters, think about the various tests you encounter as occasions for joy. Joy meaning satisfaction. Remember, joy is not giddy joy, pep rally joy, or happiness. Joy is a deep sense of contentment and satisfaction. What James is saying sounds impossible, but if it's a better word, it's like he's saying, look, when you find yourself falling into some various tests of life, when the manure piles onto your life, you can find contentment. Why? Because you know that the testing of your faith produces what? Say it. Endurance, and let this endurance complete its work so that you may be fully what? Mature what? Complete and lacking in nothing. Now, James knows that we're like the crowds. Check it out, y'all. This is the beauty of the scripture. James knows that we have a tendency to be like the crowds or we listen to the wrong theologians, like, you know, like John Piper's of, of our context who like to assign tragedies to people, uh, people's sinfulness kind of a thing. So James says this. James says, no one is, who is tested should say, God is tempting me. 
This is because God is not tempted by any form of evil, no does he tempt anyone. So let's be careful with this whole God's doing it thing. Sometimes it's just manure. Right? And James says that that can produce something in us. He goes on to say, don't be misled, my dear brothers and sisters. Every good gift, every perfect gift comes from where? Above. These gifts come down from the Father, the Creator of the heavenly lights, in whose character there's no change at all. God looks like Jesus. And Jesus is saying to the crowds, God isn't doing all that. But when, but, but when the manure of life piles on, God can do something out of that. So if God looks like Jesus and God's character is summed up and embodied in the person of Jesus, then, then James is getting at something here. That when we look at Jesus, that is God, and there's no change. The Jesus who lived and loved and, and, and ministered and, 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 yes, spoke harsh words to religious know-it-all people, but went out into the margin of people and entered into their own manure, like entered into the manure of their own lives, produced something meaningful out of it as the same Christ that's at work in you. And it says He chose to give us birth by His true Word. And here's the result. We are like the first what? See where the manure illustration comes into play? We're like the first crop from the harvest of everything He created. But here's the other part. Here's the part that we oftentimes miss. And this is a part of the parable too. And James pokes at it. He says, pay attention you who say today or tomorrow we will go to such and such a town. We will stay there a year buying and selling and making profit. You don't really know about tomorrow. What is your life? You're a mist that appears for only a short while before it vanishes. Here's what you ought to say. The Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. But now you boast and brag and all such boasting is evil. It is a sin when someone knows the right thing to do and doesn't do it. That's a heavy text. But here's what I oftentimes hear from all of us and from myself in my own heart. I'll do it tomorrow. I'll grow in my faith tomorrow. I'll go, to, I'll go to that study tomorrow. I'll go help them tomorrow. I'll help them next time. I've got things I want to do today, so I'll go serve them next time. I'll, I'll move through it next time. I'll pray for you next time. I'll do it next time. Next time, next time, next time. And what Jesus is trying to say is there may not be a next time. The grace of God is at work right now in your life. Even in the manure that's piled on, what will you do about it? See, because there's something else that the grit of grace leads us to in the manure of life. It gives us an opportunity to grow. See, it's the manure of life and the grace at work in it where we find the invitation to give grace to others in their own manure light the gardener, offer mercy, patience, forgiveness, even when their lives are filled with manure too. When we discover the grit of grace in our own manure, we should be compelled to help others with theirs. And when we understand this parable to be a parable of judgment and time and grace, and we understand that time is feeding, fleeting, we should feel the importance of helping people sort out their own manure. Now look, you're going to get a little of their manure on you. That's how it works. Some people will fling it at you. All right? Let's be honest. You know those people. 
but there's grace in that too. It'll be used by the master gardener to make us grow. I was lamenting about being a pastor, which I do about every Friday. And I was calling, <laughs> just kidding. I was calling uh, one of my old mentors, and I was lamenting over some just nonsense. And he said to me, Fred, if this is really about being liked, then you need to just go sell ice cream. The fact is, when you enter into other people's manure, you're going to get it on you. And then you're going to help them sort it out. And then you're going to walk away, and you know what they're going to do? They're going to fling it at you. That's sometimes what we do to each other. But what I'm trying to say is that we'll grow through that too. The master gardener knows how to make things grow. Thing is, judgment, that's God's business. Love, that's ours. That's our business. God's got the judgment covered. Let's you and I follow the master gardener and be gracious gardeners in the lives of others. See, if we read this parable in light of Jesus' teaching context, we have to see that part of its message as a parable of judgment is time and grace. But the end of our lives will come, and eventually so too will God's judgment. Let's not go on living fruitless lives. Let's embrace the grit of grace and make life worth living. And when we find ourselves piled, piled all over us, the manure of life, betrayals and brokenness, sickness of body, death, unmet expectations and dreams, disagreements that are hard, our egos poked at, disappointments. Let's trust. Let's, let's, let's embrace the grit of grace here. Let's hold on to the belief. God's grace has no limits, His redemption no bounds, and His love no end. And then the master gardeners and work in that. But let's be honest with the manure. It's filthy. It's messy. It stinks. It's not pleasant. Don't act like it is. It's just not. And that's okay. Christ is in that too.